From 1984 through 1991, thousands of fires were intentionally set from Southern California to the Central Coast to the Central Valley and countless places in between. Homes, businesses, dry brush, nothing was off limits. The arsonist left virtually nothing behind in the way of evidence that could ever be traced back to him for years. The damage and destruction soared into the millions and four innocent lives were lost. The arsonist was brazen. He set fires with impunity and he managed to get away with it for a long time until he finally slipped up and left behind a clue that would eventually lead investigators right to him. It was then that it became clear why this pyromaniac was able to set fire after fire after fire while managing to elude capture. He was one of them, investigating the very fires that he was setting. He was busting arsonists while moonlighting as one. Driven by a desire for attention, to be a hero, to be the very best at arson investigation, to garner recognition for his dedication to his job, while he steadily rose through the ranks. But there was also an insatiable desire to feed his own sadomasochistic sexual urges, which for him was to watch things burn. It took years for investigators to catch on to him. And even when he did come up as a possible suspect, nobody who knew him or worked with him were even willing to entertain the possibility that he was the arsonist that they sought. And this only emboldened him even more and allowed for the devastation and destruction to continue for much longer than it ever should have. Even years later, to this day, there are still many people who refuse to believe that he was responsible. Join me as I tell the story of the most prolific serial arsonist the state of California possibly the entire country has ever seen. You are listening to California Dreaming, and this is the tale of the Firestarter. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I want to remind you that this is a completely independent, one-woman, ad-free production, and there are a number of ways that you can help keep it that way. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you listen to your show on. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. It helps give the show more visibility and pushes us up the charts where new listeners can find us. You can also recommend us in true crime fan groups on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I do have a TikTok, but I forget about it a lot. And I don't have a whole lot of videos to post. Usually they're just of the dogs. And if you simply can't get enough of California Dreaming, you can subscribe to our Patreon, where you will be able to binge dozens of exclusive full-length episodes of the show. I also got dozens of thank you cards mailed out over the last month, so I hope those arrived at your mailboxes safely. If you haven't received a card from me yet, or if you've um, Join Patreon in the middle of June and or in July or in the last week or so. Um, those cards I have yet to fill out and send out, but they will be coming. So keep a lookout in your mail. And if a subscription isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation to the show through our email, californiapod at gmail.com. 
and I'll be sure to list that in the show notes. All right, let's get going with the second part of our story. In the first part of the series, we got to know our main character, John Leonard Orr. Early on, he had some aspirations of becoming a firefighter, but it seemed like his bigger goal was to try to get into law enforcement. After a series of disappointments and rejections and failures, Orr finally made it into the Glendale Fire Department And that is the department in all of Los Angeles County that offered the lowest pay. But that's all changed. When I looked up fire departments in the United States with the highest pay, Glendale came in 15th. So they get a lot more money than many, many of the fire departments across the country. Even though Orr wanted to be a firefighter, there was this big part of him that really wanted to be in law enforcement instead. After all, he did first try to apply with the LAPD, but he was found to be very troubled psychologically. But he eventually got hired with Glendale, and I think he thought that he was excelling at his job. But John Orr was weird, and not a whole lot of people really cared for him all that much. They saw him as this wannabe cop, kind of a loose cannon, And he just sort of turned a lot of people off. He was often the butt of everybody's jokes. And it would remain a theme for the better part of his career early on. As the 1980s rolled around, Orr wanted to continue to pursue arson investigation. As a firefighter, this would be the position that's the closest thing to being an actual cop. He took more courses along with a couple of his colleagues, but none of them really had any interest in that line of work. And police officers, they really didn't see arson investigation as even coming close to being as essential or as challenging as real police work. Homicides, robberies, those were the real crimes. Investigating an arson involved examining a lump of burnt out garbage. Nowadays, there is much to be said about the science of arson investigation. If you've watched Forensic Files, then you know there have been several instances where mistakes were made in the past when an arson scene was misinterpreted. When melted plastics are mistaken for leaving poor patterns that are indicative of an accelerant being used, sometimes somebody gets blamed for that. I think the science of fire investigation has evolved so much since then that you just can't put anybody into that job like maybe they used to. But for this story, arson investigation is not considered a respectable job. And what drew Orr in even more was the fact that he actually got to watch stuff be set on fire. Allowed to burn, he used to be able to study the patterns the progression of the fire, and when the fire is finally put out. Even though Orr was striving to be an arson investigator, the police were still primarily the ones who were assigned to it. Orr remained hung up on being a cop, though, at least a wannabe cop or a mall security guard. He started to think that it was his physical build that was holding him back, 
Orr's perception of an ideal cop was a tall, sturdy, well-built man with big muscles, a big gun. But Orr did have the mustache for it, though. There was that. John Orr was kind of short. He was a little bit pudgy, kind of soft around the middle like a bear belly. He didn't have a uniform. He just wore a blue shirt to work. And he drove a really ugly lime green truck. We know his thinking is wrong, but that's what he has in his mind as the ideal police officer, what I just described. And in the book, there is another encounter that Orr had that caused him to feel like his authority was not taken seriously. And it was a situation where he was attempting to do his job with fire prevention And people just saw him as powerless with no ability or authority to enforce anything. There was a property in Orr's patrol area that was in a state of disrepair. And among the things that was wrong with it was it was surrounded by dead, dry, overgrown weeds and brush. It had also become a place where kids wanted to hang out and do whatever it is that kids do. And you know how Orr feels about those types of 'er ne'er-do-wells. So Orr had sent nearly a dozen notices to the homeowner that he needed to remove the weeds, that they were a fire hazard, etc., etc. But the homeowner was ignoring him. So Orr decided to try to stake out the house, but he wasn't able to confront the homeowner. So then he went around to some local real estate offices to try and find him because he knew that the owner of the house was a real estate broker. And he actually found him going into one of the offices. So Orr scurried up there and knocked on the office door, claiming that he had a delivery. This broker was suspicious and he was avoiding answering the door, telling Orr that he was at the wrong place. But Orr was persistent. No, this delivery is for this address. So finally, the guy got fed up and he flung the door open and he was about to tell Orr to beat it. But he just kind of stood there with this stupid grin on his face. And he's saying to himself, this guy might be some big shot real estate guy, but he has never run across a firefighter quite like me, dagnabbit. John Orr wrote about this confrontation, and this is what he said. I knew this was the guy that I was looking for, my target. (laughs) Yeah, he called the guy that he was trying to give a weed ticket to. And you know I don't mean weed like marijuana weed. I mean weeds like in your garden weeds. He was trying to give this guy a weed ticket, and he called him his target. So extra. So anyway, Orr said, Look, I know who you are. Just let's do this so we can move on. Then he demanded to see the broker's ID. But when he said that, Orr had taken a couple steps going inside this man's office. The broker was pissed. He yelled at Orr, demanding that he get out of his office and off of his property. But Orr wouldn't budge. So the real estate broker shoved him. And then Orr shoved him back. That's when Orr reached for his radio to summon law enforcement. This provoked the real estate broker even more. And he shouted at Orr, What the hell do you think you're doing? Then he made a grab for the radio, causing it to fall to the ground while he simultaneously shoved Orr for a second time. This was starting to turn into somewhat of a kerfuffle as the two men struggled. 
kicking Orr's radio even further across the pavement. Then they crossed the threshold of the office entrance. They continued to tussle inside, causing the door to slam shut. And now they were both in the office. The broker then rushed over to the desk in his office and yanked the drawer open. Orr was certain that he was going to go for a gun, so he leapt across the desk, grabbed his hand from the drawer. He tried punching the broker in the face, but it was feeble and ineffective and only enraged the broker even more. Neither one of these guys, it seemed, had ever been in a fight or eventually got the guy in a chokehold and pulled him back outside. He managed to pin him to the ground while he grabbed a hold of his radio again. And while he was doing that, the broker went and bit the shit out of Orr's arm, causing him to scream while he was trying to call the police. And he didn't just bite and let go. He bit down into Orr's flesh and latched on like an angry little chihuahua. Orr kept screaming into the radio for help. At the same time, he threw another limp punch at the back of the broker's head, but Orr ended up breaking his finger when he did that. (laughs) This guy. Finally, help arrived, and they were like, here we go again with deputy wannabe cop. They didn't even have to ask what happened when they saw Orr sitting there, having been bitten, breaking his own little pinky finger. God, this guy is such a tool. But anyway, Orr's problems there with the real estate broker weren't over yet because what he hadn't realized is that this guy's 10-year-old son was in another room inside the office and heard the whole thing go down. So when he finally did emerge, the broker yelled at the cops, this nut job fireman came in here telling me to show him my ID. I didn't like his attitude. I don't know what he is doing here. So I said no and he sucker punched me. And the broker's son said, yeah, the fireman punched my dad in the face. What Orr also failed to realize is that the broker was kind of well-known and well-liked in the community. He started threatening lawsuits and whatnot. So in order to avoid any more problems, they went ahead and dismissed the citation that Orr had issued on his property, and they gave him $500 just to keep the whole thing out of court. Or supervisors told him that he could count his lucky stars because he is a hair away from being criminally charged for assault. Or could tell that his little shtick was getting on his colleagues' nerves, but he just knew, and he felt it deep into his pudgy little soul. If he was a real cop, this would have never happened, and that real estate broker would have just followed his orders, no questions asked. But, like always... The guy just dismissed him because he was nothing but a wannabe or decided that he needed to change the way that he handled these things. He needed to do this like a real cop. No more of this wannabe nonsense. His answer to this was to go on some ride-alongs. He arranged to go out on patrol and observe, and he ended up going a couple of times with one of Glendale's finest. Or described this officer as being fierce and fearless. He said this cop's style and approach was absolutely one of the most exhilarating experiences of his life. If he didn't know any better, he'd almost think that he could fall madly in love with her, he thought to himself. 
was around this period of time that the dry brush and hills in Glendale were experiencing some deliberately set fires. And they all seemed to be clustered in one particular area that was relatively affluent with expensive homes. Whoever it was setting the fires was never solved, but it did cause homeowners to regularly clear out the dry flammable brush from around their homes. And then John Orr did this weird thing. It was a scheme that he developed. And it was pretty shady how he went about it, too. And I don't exactly know why this guy was motivated to handle it this way, because I find it to be completely bizarre. But this is what he did. He would call a company that offered the service of clearing dry brush off of people's property. And it would have to be a company that didn't require him to put down a deposit or pay anything up front. He'd make the appointment by pretending to be the owner of the home. Then he would tell them to send an invoice to him in the mail, and then he'd take care of paying it. Then he would give the address of the homes that he decided needed to have their brush cleared. But if they had like a post office box, he devised a plan to obtain that information First, he tried getting the post office box information directly from the post office using the premise that he was a fire prevention specialist and he needed to send information to specific people. He needed their P.O. box information, but the post office refused to give him anything. And this infuriated him because he knew that if he was a real cop, they'd be falling all over themselves to help anything for police officers, right? And we know that isn't necessarily true either because I think the cops would have to have a warrant and with no probable cause, and especially for something kind of petty like this, there was probably no way anyone was going to get that personal information from the post office to begin with. So in order to get around that, or this guy, he's such an asshat, he scoped out the postal workers from that particular branch. And he specifically targeted one of the least attractive female letter carriers, and he courted her. They began dating. She eventually introduced him to some of her postal inspector friends. And with that, John Orr had access to people's post office box information. Orr got off on going after these dry brush violators. He was quoted as saying, The violators I dealt with were minor bandits but their evasion tactics were better than some career criminals. I found it challenging to conduct the hunt using any tracking abilities that I had to find them and make the kill. Getting them to remove that fire hazard was my trophy head, a bit like my pursuit of women during my days as a single man. Oh my God. Bandits, evasion tactics, conducting the hunt, tracking abilities, making the kill, trophy head. Like literally, I pictured Orr hanging dry brush in his living room as a reminder of his conquest. Dry brush. Just like how he'd go after women and he'd go after dry brush deniers. Absolutely absurd, this guy. It's laughable how ridiculous John Orr was in, in his own head. He pictured himself as like this this firefighting hero or something bizarre totally weird oh and dreamers you and i aren't the only ones who think or is absolutely preposterous everyone who knew him and worked with him thought so too 
Actually, they mostly described him as peculiar. Whether he was on duty or off duty, whenever there was a brush fire, he would just show up. He told people that he was there to study fire behavior. John Orr would say that he didn't care with any of those guys that he worked with at the fire department thought of him. I tend to think that that's not really true. I think he expected and wanted, desired, craved, and eventually demanded to be respected. As he saw it, all these guys ever wanted to do was sit around on their lazy asses and do nothing at the fire station. The problem they were having is that the majority of the brush fires were arson, and Orr became quite vocal about wanting to develop a dedicated arson unit within the department. He claimed that long before the FBI started doing their so-called criminal profiling, he was doing arson profiling. The FBI just got more attention because they're the real law enforcement. So during his time studying arsonists, Orr had the ability to envision himself inside the car that the arsonist drives. He had this ability to get into their heads and to know their thoughts and understand their behaviors and predict their patterns. He worked on tracking where they might live, what their homes might look like, and where they might want to be so they can have a good vantage point when watching their fires burn on the hillsides. Orr seemed to think that he was really dialed in. Orr feverishly examined every report of every unsolved arson fire, frustrated that the investigations had been so lacking. He could take one look at any arson fire and know exactly where he would be able to track the location of where the arsonist would go in order to watch that fire burn. No cop had ever thought of that, did they? They just waited until the fire was out, took a quick look around, made a report, and forgot about it. Then Orr had a big, huge find. He actually discovered a delayed incendiary device at one of the brush fires. Yep, with all this fire raging around everywhere, here comes John Orr with the actual cause of it all. All firefighters were commanded to turn their hoses off and allow Orr to conduct his investigation. And sure enough, he glanced around for a moment, found in some dry brush a cigarette with some matches and a piece of yellow lined paper rubber banded around it. Orr received a whole bunch of praise from his boss for his keen eye in finding it. He really loved all of this attention. And then Orr made his first major arson bust. There had been some fires being set deliberately near a convalescent home. So the staff at the faculty, along with Orr, quickly agreed that it must be one of these elderly residents probably somebody mentally ill or suffering from dementia or something like that, that they were the ones setting these fires or made his way through the facility. And based on where the fires were being set, he determined that the person who occupied the room that had the best view of the fires must be the one setting them because they love to watch their handiwork. He saw a very old lady sitting in her window peering out, looking exactly in the direction of the fires. Orr went to this poor woman's room. She clearly was not in possession of all of her faculties. 
and he told her that he had a witness that identified her as being the one who started the fires. She believed him, so she provided a full confession, even though it was obvious that she was not in her right mind. This woman was removed from the facility and taken to a secure one where she would be kept under tight watch. This elderly woman, whose mind had long slipped away, was the very first arsonist that John Orr busted in a long series of arsonists that he would go on to capture. What he did know was he was going to want his future captures to be much, much more triumphant and illustrious than some old lady. And dreamers, I think it's pretty clear to all of us that John Orr set this woman up, framed her for arson in order to make a bust. Absolutely pathetic. But that's what John Orr does. He creates havoc so he can be Captain Save the Day. Otherwise, he would just be another basic, loser, gooberish wannabe. The next serial arsonist or busted came just about a week later. A Volkswagen bus was stolen and then set on fire. Witnesses described a white guy with long, shaggy hair about to his shoulders, and he was seen with the VW. He also had a bandage wrapped around one hand, and blood was seeping through it. Orr was specifically told, just gather the evidence. But you know and I know that he's not just going to do that. He wanted to look for this guy with the shaggy hair and the injured hand. So he drove up and down the streets of Glendale, looking at everybody that he could see with long hair. He stared at anyone who seemed like they were trying to hide their hand or try to conceal an injury. He poked around in police files, and it was there he found one potential suspect, a guy with long hair that lived in a home that was unoccupied. It had no electricity, no water, nothing. It was just a shelter. But he did start a fire in that unoccupied home because he was cold, and that fire ended up getting out of control, and that's why there was this police report about him. So Orr went to the address, and there he found the guy with the long hair and the bandage on his hand. But this guy was ready for a fight. He had a brick, and he picked it up, and he told Orr that he was going to bash his skull in. Orr was afraid to grab his gun. He had it with him, but he wasn't supposed to have it with him. So he used his radio to call police, and while he waited, he tried to make nice with the guy so he wouldn't get bashed upside his head with a brick. The real police arrived within a few minutes and the guy was taken into custody, charged with grand theft auto and arson. So now technically, Orr has the distinction of being the only person working in the city of Glendale to be credited with arresting two serial arsonists. Between both the fire department and the police department, or was the only one. He soon learned from the fire marshal that the city was getting prepared to fill the brand new position of arson investigator and 
they suggested that he should apply and that he'd probably get it. So, Orr did, as did seven other firefighters. And two of them had also been police officers prior to becoming firefighters. However, not too many of Orr's colleagues felt like he was suited for the job. When you step back and take a look at his two arrests, arrests that technically he wasn't even qualified to make in the first place, uh, he busted one very old woman who was likely suffering from some kind of mental deficiency due to her advanced age, and he busted a hippie who stole a VW bus. It wasn't really all that impressive to anybody. Not too long after Orr's second arson bust, he got wrapped up in yet another problem while attempting to issue a dry brush citation again. But this time, it had a profoundly negative impact on his career. There was a property that had dry overgrowth all around it that Orr issued a citation to. But the homeowner was not clearing the brush, even though Orr had been there a number of times to check on compliance. The home was in a pretty upscale neighborhood, and it was a big house, one of the nicest ones on their block. So Orr finally went up to the front door to try to speak to the homeowner directly. When the door opened, the woman stood there for a moment and looked Orr up and down before she shouted, I know you. You're the guy that punched the real estate broker. Now this woman was clearly about to lose her shit. So Orr attempted to speak to her about the brush around her house and the citation. But she just started yelling, I'm calling my husband right now. Orr told her it didn't matter because they were both responsible as co-owners of the home. She immediately slammed the door shut in his face. Orr radioed for police backup. The same female cop that he did the ride-along with soon arrived. He told her what happened. And she said, well, just write up the citation. And if she won't take it from you, then I'll arrest her. In the meantime, the woman called up her husband and he turned around and called the mayor of Glendale. And the mayor turned around and called the Glendale fire marshal and demanded that he personally go to the home that Orr was at and figure out what the hell was going on and what John Orr was getting himself into now. So the fire marshal did as he was told and sorted out the issue with the homeowner. But he was more interested in sorting out the bigger issue. John Orr's behavior at work. He was becoming a nuisance, for lack of a better word. And his higher-ups were getting fed up with it. That same afternoon, the marshal summoned Orr to his office. He said, we need to talk. And Orr needed to sit down and listen and listen very carefully. He was told that he needed to dial it down like a lot. And he said, particularly with these people. Those were his exact words. Orr scoffed at the fire marshal and said, these people, these people. And then he started raising his voice. These people, as you call them, think that they are above everybody else. They are not special. They don't get special treatment. More importantly, or wanted to know, is this how we are going to treat these situations with these people when they form the new arson investigation unit? 
are people who are rich or have connections to the local politicians when they commit criminal acts? Are they just going to be given a pass because of their social status? Obviously, Orr was visibly upset and the fire marshal attempted to calm him down. He was like, settle down. And Orr did, at least for the moment. And they agreed that perhaps Orr should take a couple of personal days. He dropped his citation pad folio in front of his boss and walked out. By the time Orr got to his car, he was sobbing, drenched in tears over this. Orr took the time to do some camping by himself. He was never really all that comfortable being around anybody else anyway. It was an attempt for him to take stock and do some soul searching. And he came to the conclusion that no matter what anybody said or did or thought about him and the job that he was doing, the bottom line was he was right and it's the criminals that are wrong. But if everybody was going to give him grief about it, then he really didn't want to be in charge of the arson investigation unit anyway. So the day that he got back from camping, he wrote a letter to the fire marshal and delivered it to his office or asked to be withdrawn from the arson investigator application process, saying that he no longer wanted to be considered for the job. And going back to being a firefighter would suit him just fine, especially if nobody had the ability to value and acknowledge his skills and the hard work that he does. Well, boo who? Around the time that Orr had taken this personal time off and was getting back into his old position as a firefighter, arsons in the city of Glendale had spiked. There were numerous fires in the dry hillsides, and even some cars had been deliberately set on fire. Several months after Orr took himself out of the running for arson investigator, the chief of the Glendale Fire Department spoke to him and told him that he thought it might be a good idea if he considered changing his mind about applying for the job. And the chief knew exactly what to say to Orr. Whoever gets the job is going to be a full-fledged investigator with authority equal to law enforcement. And he would also get to carry his gun at all times. The chief barely even got to finish his sentence when Orr agreed to throw his hat back into the ring. A few days later, Orr took the MMPI test again. Unlike the first one he took when applying for the LAPD, he managed to successfully complete it. And in short order, John Orr was the new arson investigator, the very first one for the city of Glendale. He was assigned a partner, just like how cops work in teams, so do arson investigators. His partner was a detective named Dennis Wilson from the Glendale Police Department. And this was exactly what John Orr had been waiting for. This was the summer of 1981. After Orr became the arson investigator over the next couple of years, the Glendale Fire Department went from having the lowest paid firefighters to having some of the highest paid firefighters in Los Angeles County. I mentioned it before, today Glendale is 15th in the country when it comes to highest average salaries. And Orr, he stopped seeing himself as a firefighter. He began considering himself to be more like a cop than anything else. And in order to showcase his presence as a member of law enforcement, one of the things that he began doing all the time was parking facing the wrong way on the street. 
He did it any time he had the chance. Of this, Orr said, To a cop, parking on the wrong side is like marking my territory. When you see my car parked the wrong way, you know that this is my turf. That's right. That's what he said. (laughs) Parking the wrong way on the street. So stupid. But according to the book Fire Lover, in the recesses of Orr's mind, he knew that he really wasn't a cop. Among his writings, he penned this passage. There was never total approval. An arson investigator wasn't totally a firefighter or totally a cop. We were bastard children, especially to real cops. But I had news for them. I was not a wannabe. I was a cop whether they wanted to believe it or accept it. Full-time arson investigators in the state of California are defined in the penal code as law enforcement officers. And Dreamers, I looked it up and he's right. They are considered peace officers. It was a way for rejects like Orr to circumvent the rigorous application process of becoming a cop. Obviously, John Orr remained consumed with defining his role as an arson investigator. He didn't need any convincing. Convincing everybody else was a fool's errand, but to him, the cops who refused to acknowledge his status as a member of law enforcement just needed to suck it up and get over it. He was just as much a cop as they were. But the problem with this is that John Orr was never going to have a law enforcement style uniform as an arson investigator just wasn't a thing. So on the surface, he just kind of looked like somebody who worked for the fire department. Things really didn't go exactly as Orr had planned when he was made arson investigator and paired up with Detective Wilson. Their small unit of two really wasn't giving them all that much to work with when it came to getting an office and a patrol vehicle. They were crammed into a small room They had to get their own office furniture and equipment, and their patrol car was old and high on mileage. But beyond that, it didn't take very long for Orr's insecurities to surface yet again, as he was constantly comparing himself to his partner, who was a detective. He was tall. He was strong. He was formidable. He was a 15-year veteran of the police department complete with the gravelly deep voice and the standard issue mustache. His partner didn't talk much, but he didn't have to. His presence was always felt. He was imposing. He was abrasive. He was curt. John Orr was intimidated by him. And it would be in one of their first cases together that Orr realized just how small Detective Wilson could make him feel. While police in Glendale were to carry a weapon with them, whether they were on duty or not, they always had to have a gun. Orr carried his weapon in an ankle holster. But under no circumstances was anybody to bring a gun onto a fire engine. So one day when he and Wilson were called to a suspicious fire, Wilson was going to drive their patrol car to the scene and Orr was going to drive a fire engine there. But when Wilson saw Orr climbing into the truck, he ordered him to get off the truck and place his weapon in the trunk of his car. 
He was loud when he said it, and he did it in front of all the firefighters. John Orr was absolutely mortified and humiliated to be ordered what to do in that manner in front of everybody. Somewhere in all this mess, in the middle of this timeline, John Orr got married for a third time. She had daughters, he had daughters, everyone liked each other. He thought maybe that this was the right woman and the right time to build his own perfect 50s sitcom family, I guess. No matter where John Orr went, he was always, always looking for criminals committing crimes. It was constant. This man never went off-duty. Off-duty police officers may act as officers, and they may generally be more aware of suspicious activity around them, but Orr did it all the time. He paid more attention to what other people were doing, even when he was doing something leisurely on his day off. Case in point, he had taken a road trip with a friend of his and a colleague, Don Yeager, who was also a firefighter. They drove up to the Santa Clarita swap meet. I looked up the swap meet and it still goes on and it looks like it's a pretty big deal. So apparently there was a way to pull off the highway that goes by the swap meet and you park your vehicle just off the side of the road on the highway and then you just walk into the swap meet. All the swap meets that I've ever gone to had parking lots and then you have to walk a little ways before you actually get into the swap meet itself. And so this place has this parallel parking situation going on along the highway. And when you got to the first stands in the swap meet, you could still kind of see your car. So Orr and his friend, Dennis, they were looking around at one of the vendor stalls when Orr looked towards where they had parked their car. And it was Dennis's car. It was a small SUV, a, a Chevy Blazer. And Orr actually saw some guy sitting inside the car. So Orr hurried over there and confronted the guy who he assumed was attempting to steal the car of all the parked cars along the highway, right? This guy had to pick the one that John Orr arrived in. So the two of them got into a tussle that spilled out onto the highway. And it was really hot that day, too. And these guys were out there wrestling, trying to lock each other into a submission hold. And Orr was struggling and he was getting winded. He was dripping in sweat and he was terrified that he was going to get hit by a passing vehicle. A California Highway Patrol officer was headed in the other direction when he saw the two men fighting across the way. So he turned around quickly and pulled over and got out of his cruiser. He drew his weapon and ran towards them. Orr saw him and he saw his gun. And John Orr wanted to identify himself and establish his position and his authority to the CHP officer so that he wouldn't make the mistake that he was the low life. So Orr, with his neurotic thinking, starts contemplating what to say. If I shout that I'm a fireman, don't shoot. This cop isn't going to give a crap. If anything, he's going to view Orr as this wannabe loser who is trying to act like a cop. So Orr decided he couldn't identify himself as a firefighter. So he shouted, Grand Theft Auto, I'm a cop. He's a GTA suspect. Orr obsessed over how this cop or any cop would perceive him constantly. And he knew that they all felt like he was a wannabe. 
even though he saw himself as masterful at capturing criminals in the act, what was he supposed to do every time he encountered this problem? Whip out his copy of the California Penal Code and prove that he's an actual officer, but kind of, sort of, not really, but technically, yes. It was something that Orr was constantly consumed with. Orr next captured his very first arsonist that he would describe as a pyromaniac. There was an apartment complex in Glendale where there had been several fires set in a relatively short period of time. The landlord of the property called each time a fire was set, but when it came to the last fire, there was someone on the property that appeared to be a bystander, but he was kind of inserting himself into everything, trying to let everyone know that there was a fire and by helping some of the occupants evacuate. All of this was going on before firefighters had even been able to reach the scene to put out the fire. And it seemed like this guy had a little bit of a history of being nearby when crimes were happening and then getting involved in some instances coming out looking like a hero. Kind of sort of like John Orr, right? And yeah, as soon as Orr started seeing a pattern with this guy, he noticed immediately and quickly jumped to that conclusion. This guy was exactly like him. He even somehow managed to get himself the police-issued mustache. Every time there was a fire, here comes this guy with a hose in his yard trying to help put it out. One time, the guy became overwhelmed by smoke and ended up in the hospital. He listed his address as the Glendale Police Department. When Orr investigated this guy, he did make some statements that implicated himself in setting the fires. So he was subsequently charged with arson. At that point, Orr began studying, researching, and obsessing over pyromaniacs. They only accounted for a fraction of the arsonists out there, and they were almost always very isolated from other people. In his writings, Orr wrote this about pyromaniacs. The fire becomes a friend that they can relate to. Their fires bring attention, friends, admiration for being a hero, and self-esteem. Like a drug addict, one good score leads to the desire for another. I guess John Orr would know best, right? In the summer of 1982, with Orr having been the arson investigator for a little more than a year, his unit's accomplishments were outlined in an issue of American Fire Journal, and it was written by the chief of the Glendale Battalion. In all, there were 153 incidents investigated, 78 cases cleared, 25 arrests, 23 criminal cases filed, 11 convictions. Cleared cases were 21% higher than the national average, and arson incidents fell by 31%. To anybody who read about the arson unit, it looked as though the combined efforts of the police officer and the firefighter was a successful combination. But just as Orr was basking in his achievements, his partner, Detective Wilson, embarrassed him and demeaned him yet again by treating Orr like an inexperienced rookie that needed to be kept on a leash. But this time, he did it publicly and to the media. 
A reporter showed up at a scene where there had been a fire that had already been put out. Wilson and Orr were there investigating. And while Orr was poking around, Wilson said this to the reporter. John still has to work out his wannabe image. He's in there now, digging around a fire scene, wearing a gun. What's he need the pistol for? It's a fire scene, and we're the only ones here. That quote came out the next day in the local newspaper. And Orr, once again, was a laughingstock not only at his own firehouse, but every single firehouse in the city, pretty much. The problem, according to Orr, was the fact that cops just can't stand it when a firefighter solves a case that they couldn't. And the fact was, Orr was solving more cases than Wilson was. Orr was gaining quite a substantial reputation among the firefighting community in Southern California, and he just chalked it up to Wilson being jealous. And just how deep did the animosity between partners run? Well, there came a time when Detective Wilson decided to create some brand new business cards that would display both of their names, their titles, and their badges. And the badges, one was an officer badge, and one was a firefighter badge, and they were prominently in the middle of the card, and they slightly overlapped. But Detective Wilson made sure that his badge was on the top of the overlap, and Orr's badge was on the bottom. When Orr saw the business cards, he quietly raged inside. He was livid. In 1984, John Orr walked out on his third wife. That marriage eventually ended in divorce as well. His obsession and preoccupation with being a wannabe cop and what it means to be a real cop carried over into his dating life. He had gone out with a Glendale police officer and she had reported long after the fact that she knew about his preoccupation with police officers and that it controlled every aspect of his existence, every second of his thoughts. He was completely consumed with it. And she knew that their relationship had turned somewhat toxic because of it. It had been some time since they had stopped dating, but Orr continued to pursue her for sex. He begged her incessantly to come see him. He wanted to see her at his firehouse. One day she caved in and she showed up at the fire station, fully dressed out in uniform. They went down into the basement and had sex. For Orr, it was his way of proving that the LAPD was wrong all those years ago when they deemed him unsuitable. He just had sex with one of them, a real cop, and that was proof that he was more than enough. There came a time when Orr wrote an article entitled Problems of the Firefighter Turned Arson Investigator. He didn't get paid a lot, a little more than a hundred bucks, but in his mind, this officially minted him as a professional published writer. He already thought of himself as being that, but being paid for it validated it. After Orr had broken up with his third wife, he rented a room from a friend of his who was a private investigator named Bill McLaughlin. Orr was always looking for new and different and sometimes weird and unorthodox ways of investigating arsons. Based on what we have discussed so far, we already know that what he does is highly questionable. When it came to his private investigator roommate, Orr picked up some helpful tips when it came to using electronic equipment 
to spy on people or listen in on their conversations. So Orr had this bright idea, and he brought it up with his colleagues at the fire station. They should get some of these hidden surveillance electronics and place them in the offices where the labor negotiation staff work so they can get an idea and hear what they're planning to offer when it comes to new contracts. Nobody in the fire station felt like this was even a remotely good idea. They could get in so much trouble. They'd be jeopardizing their entire careers. No, there was way too much at stake for something like that that really wasn't worth it. But John Orr could not help himself. He had to know what they were talking about. So he installed hidden electronic audio devices in the break room in the offices of their organized labor team. If he ever learned anything interesting, nobody really knows. But if he had been caught, he would have been fired and charged with the crime. But that didn't seem to faze him. When it came to Orr's career, his star was on the rise. Even though the people who worked directly with him thought he was way over the top, he was still doing really well. Sometimes, the bosses... The people who don't necessarily see a person at work on a day-to-day basis are only looking at the results, the numbers, the statistics, and they just liked what John Orr was pumping out. And Orr was reaping the benefits of his career. He had his own car that came home with him every night. He was earning a good salary plus tons of overtime. That's what happens when you work both on duty and off duty, I guess. He considered his position the best job in the city of Glendale. But he still wanted to continue being upwardly mobile. He wanted to keep climbing the ranks. He wanted to be captain of the Glendale Fire Department. After all, in his eyes, there was nobody else nearly as qualified as him. There did, however, seem to be an unprecedented number of arson fires in the city of Glendale. They were dealing with fires at a frequency they had never dealt with before. Or explained this away by insisting that the only reason they had more arson fires was because he had been working so hard in order to assess each blaze and determine that it was in fact an arson where before it might have been chalked up to being an accident. Simply put, there are more arsons because of his expertise. His reputation in Southern California had been steadily growing so much so that he was asked to host the California Conference of Arson Investigators' five-day firefighting exams. He also, for the first time, arranged for a demonstration where he would be burning down a rundown building where firefighters would be able to come and observe a fire from start to finish. All of this stuff continued to feed John Orr's growing ego. He had also garnered a reputation for being a womanizer, and he really didn't try to hide it. He didn't want to hide it. His sexual conquests were just as important to him as his professional ones. According to the book Fire Lover, of his time as an on-again, off-again bachelor in the 1980s, or wrote, During my single years in the early to mid-80s, I simultaneously dated Glendale and Pasadena lady friends. My love life was no secret. I couldn't leave my pager on all night without a charger if I slept somewhere other than my home base. 
I had to let dispatch know my overnight number. If I called after 10 p.m., the dispatcher, no matter who answered, would say, Hi, John, who is it tonight? Miss 242 or Miss 795? Those were the phone prefixes for Glendale and Pasadena, respectively. Or had made a habit of dating women he met at bars. Eventually, he tried answering personal ads. He found the women who placed the ads were classier and more sophisticated, which is what he felt like he deserved. The timeline of John Orr's story now takes us to the evening of the Oli's Home Center fire that we discussed in part one. This would turn out to be the most significant arson fire of Orr's career with the fire department in more ways than one. When the sun rose the morning after the fire, the South Pasadena fire chief was told that Orr had been there when the fire was still burning, taking pictures. He ordered John Orr to produce those pictures immediately. Orr was there at the scene helping to sift through some of the rubble. He went to the photo mat and had his film developed. The fire chief was pretty upset that the crews had come in so quickly with heavy equipment to clear the debris instead of carefully going through every single section with the fine-tooth comb. He laid into the fire department for being so hasty and failing to do a thorough investigation. It also angered Orr, and he stormed off, refusing to work the scene of the fire any longer. He was also angry because... This cop was demanding that he go and produce those pictures. He wasn't going to stand there and take it. The fire, as I said in part one, was quickly ruled an accident or was really perturbed by the fact that no fire investigator with the police department attended the autopsies so that they could inform the medical examiner that they needed to look for evidence in the victims in their lungs and in their airways if they inhaled toxins or was tempted to investigate the case on his own because he knew this was an arson. He knew that these were four murders. But he was told to let it be. Two significant things happened in Orr's life in 1985. One had to do with his partner of five years, Detective Wilson. Orr had had enough of working with him. He went to their boss and he was like, look, I can't take this anymore. It is not working out. And if the unit was going to be successful and run smoothly, Detective Wilson needed to be removed from the unit immediately. So Wilson was sent back to the police department. How he felt about this is unclear, but I hope Detective Wilson saw it as a blessing and was like, good riddance. The other significant thing that happened in Orr's life that year was he got married for the fourth and final time. He met a woman named Wanda. She had a house a nice car, no kids, no husband, a couple of pets, and she had a good job at a nearby studio, movie studio. What's more, she was a retired cop, formerly with the LAPD. Seems like another way that Orr needed to convince himself that he was not as unsuitable as they said he was. Orr was assigned to another case. He was to investigate a string of minor brush fires near the home of a man whose daughter had once been a police explorer with aspirations of becoming an officer one day. When the fires would start, she would be the one to call for help each time. She would also grab the water hose in her yard and try to help fight the fire. 
When Orr found out that she didn't leave the Explorer program voluntarily, that she was in fact fired, he wanted to talk to her because he suspected that she might be what he called an arsonist in training. The reason why she was fired was because she was suspected of stealing a police officer's badge. Now, dreamers, I might be going out on a limb here, but doesn't it seem like this young woman would interest Orr a lot? Because perhaps he saw a lot of himself in her? Orr was told about this young woman by a friend of his at the Glendale Police Department. Remember that because I'm going to come back to that friend in just a moment. Or asked investigators about her, but they kind of shrugged it off and nobody really cared. They knew who she was, but they could care less about her firing or her stealing the badge. So Orr decided to go ahead and speak to the budding arsonist in person himself. He went to her home. She talked to him. She opened up about the fires that she had called 911 about. She talked about being terminated from the Explorer program. She also admitted that she was feeling depressed and distraught after being told that she was unsuitable to ever be a cop. I could very much see Orr connecting with this young lady right away. And he must have because before long she began sobbing and a confession came pouring out of her. She was so sad and alone and isolated and bored. She could not get along. The people that she worked with, the bosses that she had, they never showed her any gratitude or ever praised her work. And this included her dad, who was never around. She did, however, insist that she did not steal a police badge. Or didn't believe her on that last part, though. He was sure it was someplace hidden in her bedroom. He knew people like her very well, but he was trying to go as easy as he could on her. He was going to have to take her in and she was going to be charged with arson. And because he knows how miserable cops attitudes are, he was going to allow her to turn herself in so she wouldn't have to deal with being dragged in with handcuffs by the police. And he knew that they all knew her from her time in the Explorer program which would be even more humiliating for her. He told her, firefighters care about you way more than police. Police don't care about how you feel. All they want to do is throw you in jail. Orr's assessment of this young woman was that she was lonely. She felt a deep sense of abandonment. Her father was never there for her. She had little to nothing to do. Her mind starts spinning. She often rebels. She defies authority. And because she needs some kind of attention, she turns to arson. She starts fires and calls 911. And boom, instant attention. And she has so much desire to find a way to gain control, to be in a position of power, so much so that she stole a police badge. If that doesn't scream wannabe cop, nothing does. John Orr felt seen. Because of that, he did what he could to make the case against her as easy as possible. He recommended probation. And Orr never did tell anyone or write anything about who this young woman may have reminded him of. But I'm pretty sure it's clear to us that she reminded him of himself. A moment ago, I told you that 
It was an employee at the Glendale Police Department that told Orr about this woman's case and the stolen badge. That was a friend of his. Well, that employee was Karen Krause, the community services officer. Her husband was also a cop. And if you remember from part one, it was her sister-in-law, Carolyn Krause, who was one of the four victims that died at the Oli's Home Center fire. She was the one who suggested that Orr talk to this young woman who went from police explorer to aspiring arsonist. On January 13, 1987, there was a three-day seminar being held in Fresno, California that was being hosted by the state's Conference of Arson Investigators. Orr was planning on attending, so he told his new partner to go ahead and hang back and handle things while he was gone. In all, 242 people were in attendance from all over the state, from various agencies and entities. Some, like Orr, were investigators, some were criminal prosecutors, some were representatives from insurance companies, some were members of law enforcement, and of course, some were firefighters. What was supposed to have been a mostly uneventful three days turned out to be anything but. On the first evening of the conference at approximately 8.30 p.m., an employee at a store called Payless Drugs glanced over towards an aisle where there had been sleeping bags in a display and he saw smoke rising towards the ceiling. And just as he was processing what he was actually seeing, everything in that aisle suddenly burst into flames. The fire triggered the sprinkler system, and that, along with another employee grabbing a fire extinguisher, the fire was quickly put out. Once things settled down and investigators spoke to witnesses in the store, nobody seemed to be in the area when the fire broke out. But one witness did say that they saw someone who might have started the fire. For some reason, this witness thought the person was a deaf mute, but it wasn't clear why the witness came to that conclusion, or perhaps the person was acting like he couldn't hear or speak. But whatever the case was, there was a significant amount of damage, but it was mostly isolated near the point of origin, and for the most part, there wasn't a whole big deal made out of this particular fire. That is, until a second fire broke out that same night right across the street from Payless Drugs at a store called Hancock Fabrics. A witness who was at the fabric cutting table in the center of the store noticed a plume of smoke rising in the back corner. At first, it was a light-colored smoke, but within seconds, it started turning black. Then suddenly, fire erupted, Flames were lapping upwards towards the ceiling, and it was burning very fast. An employee got on the intercom and shouted fire. Everyone went racing towards the front doors. The woman who had first noticed the smoke knew that they all needed to get out and get away from the doors and windows because she had some knowledge and awareness that this was the type of environment where the fire will flash over. And because of the risk of the flashover, firefighters were not going to enter the building. They'd battle it the best they could from the outside. The fire was exceptionally hot, very fast moving, and very intense. When they had a chance to investigate it, they discovered that it was because the fire was being fueled by pillow stuffing and the innards of bean bags. All the customers and employees who were inside the store when the fire started managed to get out without injury and the fire completely destroyed the building. And unbelievably, 
there was a third attempted arson in Fresno, this time at a store called House of Fabrics, and it was located a block away from Hancock's and Payless Drugs. There was a bin of foam pillow stuffing. An employee noticed a smell or some smoke, and when he went to investigate, he found that someone had attempted to set a fire. There was a minimal amount of burning, but it didn't catch on. He then found a delayed incendiary device made out of a cigarette with matches and yellow lined paper rubber banded together. One witness at the store said they did see a man loitering in the area. He was really tall, like six foot six or 1.98 meters tall. He was white, had gray hair, a long white beard. He was in his 60s. He had on a captain's hat and a yellow raincoat didn't really sound like the guy was trying to blend in or anything, right? These fires had everyone in the community wondering what the heck was going on. Was somebody trying to destroy Fresno one store at a time? And was this happening on purpose because the city was hosting some of the most skilled arson investigators in the state? What was the message that the arsonist was trying to send? There just was no theory or explanation that made any kind of sense for all of these fires to be happening. Then, on the morning of the final day of the seminar, there was a fourth fire. This time, it wasn't in Fresno. It was in a city about halfway between Fresno and Bakersfield called Tulare, an hour south of Fresno at a store called Surplus City, and it was a military surplus store. And just like the fire at Payless Drugs, this was also set in the section of the store where they had their display of sleeping bags. Then, less than an hour later, There was yet again another fire, again in Tulare, at a store called, oh God, I hope I'm saying that city right, Tulare or Tulare. Let me look it up before all of you just jump all over me about it. Hold up. Tulare. Tulare. Okay, there we have it. Nobody fight me on this. Tulare at a store called Family Bargain Center. This time, a customer noticed smoke rising from an aisle towards the back of the store. The manager rushed back there and found a rack of pillows catching on fire. He pulled the pillows out of the racks and tossed them onto the ground and quickly patted out the flames. When he was sure that the fire was extinguished, he looked around and saw a delayed incendiary device at the bottom of the pillow bin. Same as the others, a cigarette with matches and yellow-lined paper. When investigators arrived, the manager said the only person he saw in that area of the store was a guy who was white, about 5 foot 10 or 1.77 meters tall, dark hair, about 170 pounds or 77 kilograms, had on a blue jacket, some nice jeans, and he was in his 20s. And then there were six fires. Another one broke out this time about an hour south of Tulare in Bakersfield at another store called Craft Mart. An employee spotted a column of smoke rising in the middle of the store, and it was coming from a display where they sold materials to put together artificial flower arrangements. The manager of the store quickly grabbed an extinguisher and was able to put the fire out. Now to examine the fire at Craft Mart... Captain Marvin Casey of the Bakersfield Police Department was their arson investigator. If you've seen the episode of Forensic Files on this case, 
it's season 9, episode 21, entitled Point of Origin, then you have seen Captain Casey. He was interviewed, as was the author of the book that I read about this, Joseph Wambaugh. So Captain Casey, he's going to be important throughout a good part of the rest of this series. So remember his name. I know I'm throwing out a lot of names and most of them you don't really have to remember. And sometimes I'll try to remind you. But Marvin Casey is an important figure in the story. He had been doing this work for more than two decades. He had specialized training in identifying the origin of a fire, causes of fire, and he had investigated hundreds of them by the time of the Kraft Mart fire that January of 1987. He went to the bin where the fire was at. He poked around a little bit and quickly found the same incendiary device that was discovered at several other fire locations, the cigarette with the matches and the yellow paper. Everything was a little bit burnt, but mostly intact since the fire was extinguished pretty quickly by the store manager. And then there were seven. Just a few minutes after 2 p.m., an employee at the Bakersfield location of Hancock Fabrics was helping a customer who also happened to be pregnant, really pregnant. She appeared that she was due any minute. But then suddenly, as they were cutting some fabric, they both started to smell cigarette smoke, and nobody was allowed to smoke inside the store. And the pregnant woman was concerned, obviously, because she's pregnant. So the employee stepped away to try to find who it was that was smoking and to tell them to take it outside. And she did spot a man browsing around the fabrics aisle. He was white, about 5 foot 8, 1.72 meters tall, and about 175 pounds or 79 kilograms, a little bit of a beer belly, some receding hairline with some gray around the temples, dressed like a cowboy with a cowboy shirt and jeans and cowboy boots. He didn't have anything in his hands, though, so when she couldn't find anyone with a cigarette, she went back to helping the customer. A little while later, the employees started hearing a strange hissing sound coming from the area where they kept all of their polyurethane products. She suddenly noticed some flames that had sort of a blue tinge to them and started shooting out from the bin. And it quickly spread to the walls of the store. And I didn't mention it earlier, particularly at the Oli's home store fire, but there was also a hissing sound when the fire was burning, and those who saw the flames described them as turning kind of a greenish color. This is the polyurethane products reacting to being burned. It makes this hissing noise, and the chemicals that the plastics are made of turn the fire different colors. So the fire triggered the sprinklers, and fire engines arrived to finish putting out the flames. Captain Marvin Casey was summoned to the scene of this fire, too. By this time, he had already been updated with information about the fires in Tulare and Fresno, so he was sure that these fires were connected because they were all so similar. Besides, there had never been two fires at retail stores at almost the same time anywhere ever in the area. This was no coincidence. And Marvin Casey started thinking that neither were the fires in the two other cities either. All of the fires were inside businesses that were open. The fires had been started in displays with highly flammable materials, and the person who did this knew that setting those items on fire would cause that fire to burn hot and fast. And the delayed incendiary devices were exactly the same. 
The only thing that didn't match up were the various descriptions that witnesses gave of a person that they saw loitering near the point of origin. There was the deaf mute, there was the tall guy with the captain's hat, and then the short, beer-bellied cowboy. It was like a motley crew of characters. But don't worry about it, dreamers. It'll all get sorted out eventually. Captain Casey put together a map and a timeline of the movements of the arsonist. First off, the fires all started along Route 99. Route 99 cuts through almost the entire Central Valley of California, and it does pass through the cities that the arsonist hit, from north to south, Fresno, Tulare, and Bakersfield. The arsonist was in Fresno from Tuesday, January 13th through Thursday, January 15th. Then he drove a little less than an hour south to Tulare, and there was a fire on the morning of January 16th. Then he drove another hour south to Bakersfield, arriving there Friday afternoon. From there, he was gone. And because of all this arson and all this chaos, it was decided that the ATF would be called in. And that would be the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Captain Marvin Casey sent the evidence that he collected from the Bakersfield Craft Mart fire, the remnants of that incendiary device, to an ATF lab located in Walnut Creek, California, for analysis. Special Agent Clive Barnum was their fingerprint guy. He had been analyzing prints for more than three decades. And if his last name, Barnum, sounds a little circusy, that's because it is. He was a relative of P.T. Barnum, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, greatest show on earth. So Barnum first tested the cigarette by dipping it into the chemical ninhydrin, which reacts to the amino acids left behind in fingerprints, to see if he could get any prints off of it. There were some markings, but nothing that was useful. Then he tested the piece of yellow-lined paper, also by dipping it in ninhydrin, and this time, he got something. A fingerprint was left behind on the yellow paper. It began glowing purple. So Barnum analyzed the print and then ran it through the National Fingerprint Database. These were all the known criminals in their system. And they came up with nothing. Captain Casey was disappointed but still optimistic after all. He now had the fingerprint of the arsonist responsible for at least the seven fires in the Central Valley. But Casey did start coming up with a possible theory, too. He had begun to latch on to the idea that these series of fires from January 13th through the 16th had something to do with the fact that there was a seminar in Fresno from the 13th through the 15th that had to do with arson investigation. He first thought that maybe this arsonist had a grudge against arson investigators for some reason, but then he had another idea, but it did seem like kind of a long shot. But what if the arsonist was a seminar attendee? At first, he was kind of like, nah, no way. But then the more he thought about it, the more it started to not feel like a coincidence anymore. So Captain Casey made the call and got the entire list of names of the 242 people who attended the seminar. He mapped out where each person had come from in California and eliminated the ones who would not have traveled 
to Fresno via Route 99, the ones who would have headed north to go to the seminar and then headed back home. He narrowed that list down to those who traveled to Fresno by themselves. Serial arsonists, after all, are known to prefer to be alone. So he managed to narrow the numbers of people from 242 to 55. What he needed now was permission to investigate these 55 people. And to do that, he would have to talk to the ATF. And this covered a lot of people. And it covered a lot of important people across various jurisdictions. While Casey was fairly certain that he was going to be told no, he had to try anyway. And he contacted Special Agent Chuck Gallion. He did not think for a minute that Casey was on the right track at all, though. These were all upstanding people, and he knew several of them. These are good people doing good work, and this hunch of Casey's was not enough for him to have this wide-ranging, free-for-all investigation into 55 people. In fact, no matter who Casey consulted about this theory, thought that he was on the right track. He thought maybe if he could narrow the list down even more that he might be able to investigate them further, even though everybody was telling him to move on. Captain Marvin Casey just would not let it go. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to go ahead and stop part two here for now. When we come back for part three, we're going to get to know a couple more of John Orr's partners. He preferred working alone, so he had trouble getting along. He published another article in the American Fire Journal. A couple more years would go by, and our story is going to take us into 1989, and there would be another significant arson conference in the town of Pacific Grove, California, which was going to be over the course of four days, beginning March 5th, 1989. And Orr would be attending this one, too. And next time, we will find out just what happens when he goes to that conference. Don't forget to follow California Dreaming on Facebook, join the discussion group, support on Patreon if you have a dollar or two to spare. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>